0: All right, Uh, Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you that we get to gather here, especially after a full week of being in your word and thinking about your word and trying to think about our world and how we should view it through your word. We're thankful that we get to fill our minds and our hearts with your word. And we pray that you would use your word uh, through the power of your spirit to transform our minds and our hearts even today and help us to live it out in obedience to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I had two competing desires yesterday as I was driving home from the wide asleep conference. (laughs) That was such a good joke. Uh, You can only say that once. Um, One desire was, man, I just kind of want to just talk to you about what stood out to you, what you learned, what you felt like was really helpful. But I also want to get back to Acts because it's been almost a month since we've been in the book of Acts. So being the person who has no ability, no ability to manage time whatsoever, I decided to try to do both. So uh, really quick, was there anything that you guys really appreciated from the Wide Awake conference that you'd like to share uh, with anybody else? Just Just like something like man, I like it, like, it doesn't have to be something in your notes. It's just like, that really was a good point that they made. Um, I really appreciated that Bible verse being explained that way. Anybody? Didn't give you guys any prep for this, but... Uh, yes, Joel? Yeah, I liked what he said about, one of them said, about not caring what the world thinks because the world doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. not that sometimes we try to be so nice to people that we don't actually just give them the gospel. Right, right. Um, I like that part. Yeah, that was like his freebie that he didn't write down. That was like my favorite quote of the whole entire week. I wish I could remember what the quote was because I like keep saying it in my mind over and over again and like kind of reforming it and repackaging it. Like in my mind, the current iteration of it is um, if you try to appease and please the world, they're going to despise you, right? Because you're... Because you're you're trying to just kind of, you know, go up to them on bended knee, please, like me. <laughs> They're going to despise you. So might as well have them despise you for cutting it straight with the gospel, right? They're going to despise you either way. Do you want them to despise you for getting the gospel right or being just a worm, you know, he didn't use that word, but that's how I, yes was it the quote, um, stop caring that they don't care, yeah that was kind of the quote, (laughs) see, but like it changes every time I say it, so yeah Uh, anything else, anything else, yes CJ, (laughs) they destroyed the, um the, what's it called, a racial CRT. website, CRT, BLM. website, bln Marxism.com. Oh, yeah, that was interesting, he, he, he right? It was yeah. so indestructible, but it's yeah, no. with a few simple words against them. They had to whitewash it. Yeah, yeah. And now it's clean. That, that's, that's interesting. Because <laughs> um, I remember reading their website like way back in the summer of 2020, and they said all those things very clearly, and they don't say those things anymore for some strange reason. Um, but, yeah, it's because like people are starting to see what they're all about. Yes. Um, I kind of backing off to of Caleb. I liked how he said that, like the that, like using the word race is like um, wrong. T- it's not race; it's ethnicity. Uh-huh. And thinking that race is just black or white is that's not. Um, that's just a uh, man-made um, thing. It's not accurate. It's not biblically accurate. And so the word to use is ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's helpful. Acts, so Acts 17 gives us that, like um, the whole human race is from one ethnos. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that's really helpful. There's, there's, there's these ideas that have been funneled down to us through, you know, Darwinianism and whatever you want to call it. Um, just like there's like multiple different streams of humans. Serena is closing her eyes in embarrassment. Um, uh, what's the question? Huh? What, do you want to say something? No, I don't Okay. She's back. I'm really nervous. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just the whole idea that we're all kind of of the same race, race, um, and that's the human race. I think that's helpful for us to, yeah. to know and to learn and to think about. Um, yes, Jackson. I really liked um, Phil Johnson's def- definition of postmodernism and modernism. Mm-hmm. Those are two um, ideologies that are really prevalent. Mm -hmm. right now that he really clearly defined. I also really like Daryl Harrison's quote "Uh, the problem in the world is the problem of systemic sin not systemic racism Mm -hmm. and that's the real problem systemic sin. Mm -hmm. That was really good Yeah. When you say something is systemic you're saying it is impacting, influencing and forming and shaping every aspect of your culture Um, and that is sin. That's what's truly forming, shaping and controlling every aspect of culture. Mm-hmm. Notice the world doesn't want to talk about sin, but uh, so they try to find a human, worldly um, ex- excuse to not talk about it. Just any other thing to talk about than sin. Yes, no. Well, I like how you gave us a list of books that we could read so we know Yeah. I mean, if... Whoa, man. Uh, those books would be heavy lifting. Although I do want to say, I, I really want to get that atlas of the transatlantic slave. Um, and I do want to get that one about the... Uh, the red lining. I, I think I might get that. I'll try to find it on a, on a website somewhere. But yeah, some of those things were probably pretty thick books that, judging by the quotes that he was trying to share with us, make absolutely no sense. So, <laughs> Yes, Jeremy? appreciate how they t- went in detail on the differences between how we treat a professing believer who claims to be gay versus an unbeliever uh-huh. who claims to be gay. And they really kind of went in on the, the very big differences between the unbelieving world acting in a sinful manner. Sexually versus a believer acting yeah. in the same manner, sexually. right that was that was really good man that was that was one of my favorite messages, and to be honest, I was a little confused about it the entire time. What does this have to do with wokeness, but it was like my favorite message, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like the Friday night Phil Johnson message just about like you can't be a Christian and, and identify as a sinner, you know that's just yeah. not what a christian. Does you can't be a thieving Christian, a lying Christian, and you can't be a homosexual Christian either. That's just absolutely uh, contrary to who you are in Christ. And that was a very that was a very important thing. And yeah, just the way he broke down that chapter, I really I really appreciated that. Yeah, CJ. I like in the Q and A how uh, the question was uh, where do your where do your priorities lie? Uh-huh. Uh, what position you're in? In a social standing or um, where you are in a good church, if you are in a good standing in the world standards, like you have a lot of money or you have a big job, but you don't have a good church, you would rather you should rather go to a place Where is a good church, like California. The only yeah. reason we're here in California is go to this church. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. I I think honestly. I think that is important for you students to hear and to think about and make a decision on where are you going to choose to live your life? Because you're going to probably move away from here, maybe. Um, If you're like me, you spend your entire life moving around, but maybe other people just stay close to home. But you're going to make a choice someday in your life about where am I going to live? And your choice primarily should be based on where can I grow and follow and serve Jesus the best? Not where can I make the most money? Where can I have people surrounding me that agree with me politically? enough. No, it's like, man, where does Jesus want me to be to grow in him and to serve him, right? Um, it's the harder places of the world that you can serve him more sometimes. So, like, yeah, let's be intentional Christians. Let's not just be, hey, how can I get through this world as comfortably as possible? No, let's be intentional Christians about where we live and why we live here in California. When my family asks me, man, how in the world? Why in the world do you live there? It's so crazy. We're hearing these news stories. Says, isn't because this is where the lost are. This is where Jesus wants me to serve Him. And I can serve Him so, so effectively here because there is so much of a need here. That's, that's the kind of people we need to be. Um, yeah, Matt? Uh, I really like the Friday Night Message also. Sorry, ladies. Um, how he um, defines the law versus the gospel. He uh-huh. said that the law has no mercy on the sinner, but the gospel has mercy on the sinner, but justice on the sin itself. Yeah, yeah, right. I, that was one of my favorite quotes. Right, um, the the gospel gives mercy and grace to the sinner, but not to sin, um, and that's that's why we love the gospel. Um, okay, we're gonna. Oh, go ahead, Kelsey. Go ahead. I was gonna say it really just solidified like the need for critical thinking because mm-hmm. I, I just. Randomly, like I had a patient on Friday that wrote an opinion piece in the Californian about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. It's like I took a photocopy and read through it and it's like it sounds good but then you start, you know, talking about the resources and Mm -hmm. things you got to think about because it's like, kind of sounds good but then you're going, no, that's not right right Mm -hmm. there, you know, and it's just hearing all this stuff yesterday too just kind of makes you think like, I can't just take what the world has. I really Mm got to think it through and process it because it's going to sound good on the surface Yeah. then you start really digging deep. It's like, but something's not right oh yeah, yeah, um, I, I keep saying the most important thing I heard, but here you go, another one, the best thing, okay, so like I like what I want you kids to remember is like two of the things that Daryl Harrison said, number one, keep your enemies close, <laughs> you no, know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, you know, like the Godfather too um, that 's very important, make sure you 're reading their arguments, understand their arguments, actually, if you are a biblically informed. Christian, um, you can actually actually have a defense if you understand their arguments. Don't be afraid to look at their arguments. But then number two, I really liked how he said, we got to define your terms constantly, right? They're going to say things, they're going to throw slogans at you that sound really good and are going to make you feel really bad because, you know, right, Who doesn't think black lives matter? Right. In in some ways I do, but I don't think it matters for the same reason you think it matters. And I don't agree with how you're defining these terms. I don't agree with how you define justice. I don't agree with how you define racism. I don't agree with any of the terms you are saying. And when I read a book, Like you read, I can't understand any of the terms you're saying anyway, but, but still, we got to constantly be asking ourselves, what do they mean by this? And what does the word of God mean by this? That's what you need to do constantly. If you're going to have a biblical worldview, you need to constantly be saying, define that, define that. How does the word of God define that? How does the word of God view that? That is, that is a, that is a Christian worldview constantly, uh, forming things based on how the word of God defines things. Um, really quick, uh, Hey, welcome. There's a great row right here in the front where nobody wants to sit. I'll back up. I'll back up awkwardly. Uh, uh, I thought uh, Daryl Harrison, he, he talked in his last message. He, like, waited till the very end to give you a a beautiful, like, argument. And I just wanted to repeat it for you guys really quick. Remember his five reasons why CRT is unbiblical. I thought it was good, and he went through it so fast that I kind of want to just go through it again um, to make sure you guys caught it. But number one, um, the reason why CRT is unbiblical, it categorizes image bearers into groups and divides for the purpose of division and class struggle. Remember that uh, CRT categorizes image bearers into groups, social groups. Why? Because they want division, because they want conflict. And, and why do they want that? Because I thought it was very interesting because they want money, right? <laughs> they, they want they don't want the cancer to be healed. They don't want to actually solve the problem. They just want constant conflict because they're making a lot of money, um, That was really, really good. Um, Number two, reason why CRT is unbiblical. It imparts sinful motives simply on the basis of skin color. Um, That was really good. Number three, it transfers the guilt of the past to the present by proxy. I like how Daryl was saying CRT seeks to weaponize the past weaponize the past. Um, There's no hope, there's no gospel, there's just guilt. That's all the past will bring you, just guilt. Um, Number four, it is rooted these last two points I thought were the best. Uh, it is rooted in the sin of partiality. Um, this is a big, big red flag, right? Um, you can only have justice according to CRT when you have inequality, um, and and no one ever asks, hey, hey. So we got here by inequality. So we're going to get out of here by inequality. Uh, the the response to sin is sin, and that will produce righteousness. Um, that's kind of a problem. Um, it's not a popular idea. Um, number five, then, um, CRT is unbiblical because it promotes enmity and envy under the guise of justice. It is, overtly, uh, it is overtly trying to stir up strife. It is trying to promote sin. And it is trying to produce partiality. Those are all words that the Bible condemns, right? Right. So this is, this. is we can have nothing to do with this. We can have nothing to do with this, because this is sin. This is not addressing the real problem of society, right? It's not addressing sin inside of us. That is the problem. Why am I angry? Why am I resentful? Why am I mean? Why, why am I showing partiality towards my neighbor? It's because of sin inside me and the hostility that's inside me. Remember how uh, Daryl said, right? Um, it's hostility. It's... Uh, it's hostility. It's not ethnicity. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a result of you being at war with God, and that creates you being at war with everybody around you in your life. Um, those are the three reasons why he, he gave for why CRT is unbiblical. And I wanted to make sure you guys heard those again, in case they went really fast um, through you. Um, another thought I had, and we'll kind of use this to transition to Acts 5 where we're at, is um, didn't you get a sense that um Daryl Harrison has received a great deal of mistreatment because of his stance on the gospel. Did you get that sense? He kind of he kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit and talked honestly at some points in some of his sessions about the words that have been directed towards him because of the stance he has taken. Did you you guys remember that? You got that sense a little bit? Like that was just like horrifying. Wow. That, that, that people would say this. Um, but I got another question for you. Did you get the sense that he was gloomy because of the way the world was treating him? No, I got the sense that he had more joy, more courage, more boldness than anybody else, right? And and, and, I, and, I, and I say that because that's what we're going to learn about here a little bit in Acts 5. We're going to see bold Christians being bold because they're standing on the truth of the gospel and they know the person of Jesus and that actually leads to boldness to courage to being able to speak clearly to being free from the fear of man because they hold to the word of God And they believe in the person of Jesus Christ, resurrected. Um, Let's look at that really quick. Okay, so we're in Acts 5. Uh, What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk through just the scenes of Acts 5. We're going to see if we can get through this entire chapter. Technically, we could spend an entire message in Acts 5, 12 through 16, so I'll try to get out of that little kind of introduction section as quickly as I can, because once again, I'm trying to get through Acts 5 in a reasonable amount of time, Um, but we're going to kind of just walk through simply, just kind of name scenes, and I don't have any special plan behind the titles of these scenes, this is just to help you kind of follow and track with me. What I really want you to do is track with the application that we can from these different scenes. So, scene number one. Let's look at this. Oh no! I'll fix it super fast. All right, there you go. Thank you. Uh, I forgot to animate uh, the slideshow. So, uh, power off. I don't want. You to, I don't want you to see this stuff. All right. Um, scene number one. You can write it down. An unexpected growth. An unexpected growth. An unexpected growth. This is twelve through sixteen. Have you ever noticed in your life how the greatest moments of growth for you do not come when life is easy? They do not come when you're at ease. They come when you're uh, when you're experiencing testing and trial. That's when growth happens in your life. It's not when you're sitting on the couch eating nachos and playing Call of Duty. It's not when you're on your phone just absorbing more content, just letting the the feed scroll. That's not when spiritual growth tends to happen in your life. It tends to happen when you are under testing, when you're under a trial. And this kind of brings us to where we are with the early church. And you need to remember where we were. Uh, a couple of months ago when we were in Acts 5, 1 through 11, right? We were in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we saw how God stops for sin, and it's uncomfortable, and it's difficult, and it's challenging. And when, when God stops for sin in our life, it never really feels like, wow, man, this is humbling. This is kind of discouraging because I'm seeing my sin being exposed. It never really feels like, man, God's going to bring a lot of growth in my life through this. But that actually is how God brings growth into our life, by stopping for sin, by dealing soberly with our sin, by seeking our purity, not our popularity, our purity. That is how growth, spiritual growth happens in our life. And let's let's read this here. After the inner purity, we're going to, we're going to see kind of the results of this inner purity. Uh, Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Notice what... Purification produces in the early church. And by the way, application, notice what your personal purification can produce in you, too. Notice what it produces. First off, it produces a great fear. You see that in verse 11, right? And I talked about this a couple months ago when we were here, a great fear. This is the only time that fear is used in the book of Acts with that word great attached to it. This is the only time that fear is great. It's not because the religious leaders are hounding you. It's not because the Gentiles are coming after you. What causes the church to have great fear? It's the knowledge that God is going to take sin seriously in my life. Right? That causes great fear. Great fear. That is the result of purification. God becomes your greatest fear. Man, there's lots of problems in this world, but my greatest fear... Is before God, because he is the one who will stop me, dead in my tracks, to deal with my sin. Another thing that we see resulted from purification is we see a boldness, a same-place boldness in the church. You see verse 12, they were continuing to meet together in Solomon's portico. And if you are an alert leader, you will remember that this is exactly exactly where they were meeting before, they got in trouble with the chief priests. So in in chapter 4, they're meeting there. And then in chapter 3, they're meeting there. Notice they got in trouble by the religious leaders in chapter 4. And the religious leaders threatened them saying, hey, you need to stop preaching in this name. But notice purification of the church resulted in boldness. Why? Because God was their greatest fear. We don't need to fear you. We need to obey God. And that led to boldness. They could be in the same place. They could be well-known. Everybody knew that the church was meeting in Solomon's portico, but yet they had boldness because their greatest fear was God. Once again, notice that. Boldness comes when your greatest fear is God, not man. That is where boldness comes from. God's fear produces tranquility. Tranquility, even when there's threats all around you. God's fear can produce peace and tranquility in your life. Another thing that purification produces, it produces an inner unity. You see this in verse 12. They were all together. They had this sense, we need to be together. We need each other. We need to be hearing God's word. We need to be fellowshipping. We need to be worshiping. Because God is the most important person. He is our greatest fear. And he has given us resources and means in in one another. And in the gathering of the church that we desperately need. There was this unity. There was this unity. Once again, notice that flows from the greatest fear. When God is your greatest fear, you have great unity with your fellow believers. You have great unity. And then number four, it also produced this purification in the church. It produced, this is very interesting, a separation. A separation. A separation. You see this in verse 12. Now many signs were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together. The church was all together in unity. And then in 13, a curious verse says this. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Notice the contrast. None of the rest versus the people. Who are the people? These are unbelieving Jews, probably in Jerusalem at the time. So who are the rest? You have all the church together, but none of the rest joined them, yet the people held them in high esteem. Well, I suppose you could interpret it as meaning no unbelievers dared join them. But the the phrasing and the wording there in that verse seems to suggest this was a third group, not unbelievers and not believers. It was, it was some other group. And I would say this is uncommitted Christians. Wow, I could get in trouble. I could get in trouble for following Jesus, for publicly publicly identifying with this church. The, the religious leaders are going to get mad at me. Or more importantly, wow, I could get in trouble if I'm a phony believer in God's fellowship. Because look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Right? There's a fear of God that separates, separates the true believers from the false. When God purifies His church, when God purifies His church, the the committed hang around, but the uncommitted say, I'm out of here. I don't want any piece of this. This is dangerous. This is dangerous for me. There's a separation that happens. The truly committed remain, and hearts are revealed. Hearts are revealed through purification. And then finally, we see this also authentic salt and light occurs. The people held them in high esteem. The church, by and large, was very impressive. It was a beacon of light in the world. And it also had an an effect on those around them. People held them in high esteem. They were able to be light. People were like, wow, they are communicating a true message. And, and the, the idea of salt and light comes from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. As you all know, light being the communication of biblical truth and salt being how the church kind of represents this stabilizing uh, impact on the world. You, you restrain evil just by your presence in the world. And, and the church was this. Why? Because they stood out. Because they were purified. Because people knew, hey, those people follow Jesus. Everybody knew those people follow Jesus. And that caused them to have an impact on the world around them. That's what we see in verse 13. And I just want you to just pull like a number of applications um, from this. Notice that inner purification of the church is God's roadmap for growth. Notice that. Verse 14, more than ever believers were at it. This fear of God actually produced God's plan for growth. You want to see the church that grows more and more? It's a church that seeks purity more and more, holiness more and more. And and by the way, this is God's same roadmap for you in your spiritual growth, right? Your inner purification is God's roadmap for growth in your life. You confessing and repenting of sins, you, you putting on new practices, you pursuing sanctification, you pursuing purification is God's roadmap for growth. You don't grow if you're friendly with sin and you're friendly with worldliness. You're not going to spiritually grow. This is God's roadmap for spiritual growth. And then a second application you could say here is, is that we see here a little bit of a, a truth for us for how we react to unbelievers clear unbelievers that want to be among us. I'm not talking about phony believers. I'm talking about unbelievers that come to youth group or come to our church because they're interested in the gospel. How do we interact with them? We see here a little bit of instruction for us. The church is a place that should welcome sinners, but not sin, right? The church is a place where you come, not because you want to be comfortable with sin, but you come because you're uncomfortable with sin, and you go to the place where people seem to have an answer and a response for sin. The church is a place for people that are uncomfortable with their sin, that want to be done with their sin, that want to have a, a solution for the problems of their heart, and not a place for people that want to be comfortable with their sin. That's, so we should welcome unbelievers who are interested in hearing about the gospel. We should ask them questions. Hey... Do you know why we gather here? Do you know what's so important to us here? That's, that's kind of our, our little map here. This is a place for people who want to be uncomfortable with sin. That should be the kind of community we foster as believers, right? So that is an unexpected growth, and and as I said, that could be a whole sermon right there. But I was trying to slam it in there so we can keep moving. Um, Really quick, let's move to the next scene here, a public shaming. A public shaming we see here. Not all in Jerusalem are so excited about what's going on here. We see in verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and all those were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public Prison, The public prison, notice their whole effort here is an effort to shame them. Their, their whole effort here is to send a message to all Jerusalem and everybody that wants to associate with these believers. Hey, this is what we're going to do to you. We're going to put these men in a public prison so everybody in Jerusalem knows this is what happens when you follow Christ. You go to jail, right? A public shaming. Why were they trying to shame them? You see that. Kind of, they feared, they feared the popularity of the apostles, right? Why did they fear? They were jealous. Uh, They're going to take something from us and we won't have it anymore. They also feared this kind of act of insubordination on the part of the apostles. The the apostles had already been warned once in chapter 4, and there's a little bit of interesting background note here, in uh, kind of the first century world. Um, A Jewish court like this would give a commoner, someone who didn't know the law, they'd give him two chances because you don't know the law. We'll we'll give you a warning, but but if you do the same thing again, then you're in big trouble. So these apostles were intentionally defying the religious leaders' Uh, orders and so that caused them great fear. What, what, what's going to happen if we, if we let this go on? Then, then the rest of the city is going to start just doing whatever they want and not take our authority seriously. And then the Romans are going to come and take away our spot. But, but you notice the, the, the kind of lingering motivation behind all of that, isn't it? It's, it's a fear that I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my popularity. I'm going to lose my power. That is what is motivating and driving these men to do what they did. And, of course, they chose an approach that is the most effective approach that humans can choose to get people in line, right? It is public shaming. Um, When you are shamed in this way, it is very hard on you, right? A natural person cannot handle public shame. A natural person cannot handle being the weirdo in the community that will that will shame a natural person into conformity. A matter of fact, we we kind of saw this already, like there was, there was some fear going on in the church earlier in verse 13, and we saw some separation happen there. But but basically this is this is why Jesus said, hey if you're gonna follow after me, you need to take up your cross daily, right? You need to be willing to be a fool to follow me because the world is going to try to make you feel like a fool for following me. This is a public shaming. Next, the next scene we have, I think this is kind of a humorous one if you ask me, we have a public and ironic surprise. A public and ironic surprise. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice first, the message they are called to speak is the words of this life. That is that is the message of the gospel right there. It is described in one word, life. That is the gospel, that you receive life. It is a message about receiving eternal life. We're all eternal beings heading for two eternal destinations, and the message of the gospel gives you eternal life as one of those options. And it's a message itself that gives life, and it's a message about the one who is life himself. Jesus says this in John eleven twenty five 25-26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a message about life. It's a message about the one who gives life. It's a message about knowing the one who gives you eternal life that can't even be destroyed with death itself. Do you believe this? Now, why is this a public and i ironic surprise? Well, There's there's a few things that are ironic about this. First off, you should remember that um, the disciples were in prison because the Sadducees put them there in a public prison to shame them, to silence them. But you should know this about the Sadducees. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the resurrection, and they don't believe miracles in angels it almost is like the Lord Jesus Christ himself sent an angel just to annoy them just to kind of expose the weakness of their theological position it's ironic if you ask me angel just goes there and opens up the door, because Jesus could have just opened up the door for them, but no, he sends an angel to directly confront their worldview, and it's public as well, right? The religious leaders had thought to publicly shame them, but now, what's going to happen? They're going to have all this public reputation as being released from jail by an angel? No, no, that's how it goes on, right? And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach, They began to teach. What do you think was the greatest hook of this sermon? How did they get things started? Hey, I was just in jail last night, as you all recall. (laughs) And notice I'm here right now. Because an angel of the Lord released me from jail to send you this message that you must hear. Right? That is quite the hook. It's public, right? When, When the world's ridicule against you is public... Christ Jesus may just be aiming at public glory for himself, right? Notice, and then this is where it gets uh, very funny, I would say. A surprise, a surprise. And Now, when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all... uh, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked. Notice the angel locked the door again. How very interesting. And the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering... What, this, uh, what would come of this? And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Notice, it's, it's a surprise. It's a surprise because the Lord Jesus Christ, by locking the door again, makes the religious leaders think they're in control when really they are not, so that the disciples have lots of time to spread the message of Jesus all throughout the temple complex. A very uh, public and ironic surprise to show Jesus Lord over all things. Let's move to the next scene really quick. A bold witness. A bold witness. Now, once again, remember that this trial that's about to happen in verse 27... It's going to be public knowledge. Everybody's going to be talking about this in Jerusalem. So what the disciples are about to say here is significant. And we'll kind of break down what they say just really briefly as kind of the secrets of boldness. The secrets of boldness. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest, questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Really quick footnote. Huh? Aren't you guys the ones that said his blood be on us and be on our children? Sorry. Okay. Uh, so anyway, they're in denial. Um, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What are the kind of the secrets of boldness that we can glean from this? Well, first off, you should number 1, be clear. Be clear of everything but your highest fear. Notice the boldness that these disciples can have because God is their highest fear. What do they say in verse 29? We must obey God rather than men. We must Be clear. Be clear of all lesser fears. It will bring stability to your life. It will bring freedom to your life because you're not bound and strapped by the fear of what everybody else is going to think. You're only bound and strapped by the fear of what one person thinks of you. You are clear of all other fears. Be clear. Be confident. Be confident in the message of truth that God has given you. We saw this in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Be clear about the fact that, hey, this is the only way that God has provided for people to be right with him. And notice how the message just pivots around the person of Jesus. It's not a message of, you must do this and you must do that although there are demands in the gospel message, but it's a message that essentially is saying, Jesus has done this, and Jesus has done this, therefore you must respond in faith and repentance, right? Because that's what they say, right? Because he has done this, he he has been killed, and he has been raised to life, he gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. But it's contingent, pivoting on what Jesus has done. That is the gospel message that you must be clear on and confident in. Be confident. And then another thing, be called know why Jesus has left you. Notice these disciples knew why they were here. They were not here to pad their portfolios. They were not here to have a a great life. They were here to be witnesses of Jesus. And yes, we are called to be wise. We are called to be hard workers in this world of ours, but ultimately we are left here to be witnesses of Christ Jesus, aren't we? They were called. Be clear. Be confident. Be called. And then one of my favorites, be comforted. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You are confident, you are bold, because you are ultimately very comforted. I am not alone in presenting the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is also a witness sent to convince the world of what? sin, righteousness, and the eternal judgment. It's, conv- it's sent to. He is sent to convince the world of Jesus. And notice we see two truths about the Holy Spirit's ministry here. The Holy Spirit, number one, is necessary for obedience. You need the Holy Spirit to even obey. It's a gift of God to obey and respond in repentance, as we see from Second 2 Timothy 2.24. But also notice the Holy Spirit is also a gift for more obedience. The Holy Spirit in your life is obedience in your life. That, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, obedience in your life, obedience to Christ Jesus, freed from sin to follow and obey Christ Jesus, your Lord. That is a bold witness right there. Let's look at another scene, the fifth scene, an exposed weakness, an exposed weakness. Did you notice how, how the writing here and how Luke writes here? He, he presents the, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, the chief priest. As people that have a lot of power, right? A lot of control, right? All of this regalia language in verse 21, right? They assembled, they gathered together, they called in, right? There's a lot of power playing going on here, isn't there? But we see, we see now the true weakness of the unbeliever's condition. They may look impressive on the outside, but inwardly they are very weak, we see verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The word enraged is very interested and interesting. It means to be vehemently and violently angry in reaction to something that you are hearing. It means literally to be split open or cut open, cut in two. Uh, the NASB translate this, translates this as cut to the quick, which essentially means you are struck at the deepest, most fragile part of you. Ephesians 2 talks about our hostility with God, and that's what the word of the gospel brings. It will cut you open, it will expose you, and it will expose one of two things. It will either expose intense, intense hatred, anger, and pride, and resistance to the gospel message because of how great you think you are, or it will expose your helplessness, and it will expose a humble Helpless faith. That's what the Word of God does. It it will expose you. It will reveal you to you. It will either reveal an enraged you or a humble you. That is what the Word of God does. Now, they want to kill these men, but they need the full consent of the whole council, and they don't have it. We see that there is this other group in the council, maybe a minority group, but a powerful group called the Pharisees, who don't necessarily want to kill them, but seem a little bit nervous about these men. Verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men for before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and the number of the men about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing after him. Judas, the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And then we see that they took their advice. Notice just basically the, the message here of this high figure in the, the Pharisee world and, and somebody who was deeply respected at that time. The message was basically this, hey, this movement will be proven by its unstoppable nature, right? And you, you don't want to be opposing God if this movement is of God. Now that's, in my mind, Along the lines of the theme of Acts, right? The unstoppable work of Jesus through the, through the church, by the Holy Spirit, to, to, to bring about the plan of God and the salvation of that is found in his name, right? This guy, Luke is kind of like really leaning into this enemy's critique of the the message of these apostles because it kind of falls in line with his thinking. But I would say this necessarily isn't the way you should decide on truth. You shouldn't decide on truth based on hey, if it lasts, it's 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 true necessarily. If it's pragmatic, it's true. But I think this is just Luke using it for his purpose. Uh, that is that is kind of the the weakness that is exposed that we see in this. These, these men are exposed in their weakness, and they're exposed in their inability to really fight against God. That is truly the condition of the unbeliever, when they're truly exposed by the Word of God. Wow, we cannot stop the Word of God from happening. Jesus' message will go out, it will be unstoppable, and he will have you proclaiming his message as long as he wants you to. Now, this doesn't mean you will have an easy life, because you see there in verse 40, when they had called the in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. They beat them. Ah, the The believers were bold, and for their boldness, they received punishment, painful punishment. It just doesn't mean that Christ isn't going to let you suffer at all, but he's going to reveal his glory, maybe even through your suffering. But you have to be bold for that. Now, there's a final scene that I want to just kind of lay out here, and this will kind of maybe draw it all to a conclusion a little bit. We'll call this an unexpected strength. An unexpected strength. This, if you'll notice, is very similar to my first point, because there seems to be kind of like a, uh, a parallel in the way this story begins and the way it ends. We end like we began, in one sense. The Christian does not respond to testing and trial the same way that uh, a natural person would. Growth comes from testing. Joy comes from trial. Courage comes comes from trial and testing. We see all of these things. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Notice here, They had taken the words of Jesus to heart when he said, Blessed are you when men revile you. Say all sorts of evil because of, uh, uh, about you concerning me. Rejoice and be glad. This kind of response is only possible in you when you are in Christ Jesus. This kind of response is only possible when you are strengthened by faith. And, and this kind of response is only possible in you when you have a right gospel humility about you. We saw this exact same response in Paul all the time, right? Right? The, the believers who really understand God's mercy and God's grace in their life understand, understand that anything that comes my way because I'm in Christ is an undeserved grace to me, right? Even suffering for the name of Christ is undeserved. It's better than I deserve. That is the boldness of a Christian. Now, let me just kind of end with this. Public shame can only be overcome by a new heart, by the strength of the Spirit, and by the joy in the Gospel. That's the only way you can overcome public shame. And you can only have joy in the Gospel if it is first your Gospel, right? If it's good news for you, that's, that's the only way you can take joy in suffering and even find boldness in intense trial and testing. That is the only way. That is the only way. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this message. We pray that you would um, use it and help to instruct us in in the way that we should go and continue to inform our heart about how spiritual growth happens and and how we can be strengthened in that moment and for that moment. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.